can be seated. The first reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, not to the one who works, not to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the law will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the purpose promised to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is no, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is the word of the Lord. been with us. You know, we've been in Galatians and we're going to continue on. We've, uh, here we are. I think we've hit six weeks now and we're just now getting to chapter three. We spent quite a bit of time in the first two chapters. Um, if you've been with us, just, just real briefly, or if you haven't been with us or you've missed some weeks, just to catch you up. Uh, as we've been going through Galatians, we've talked about the purpose and the occasion of Paul writing the letter to the churches in Galatia is a misunderstanding of the gospel. There's some false teachers that have come in and they start to preach a Christ plus. Christ plus works, Christ Christ plus circumcision, plus keeping the Old Testament law. And Paul says that cannot be the case. That is not the gospel. And what we saw in the first two chapters, a 
lot of what he does in those first two chapters is he's making a defense of himself. And we talked about that. It's real practical. Um, some teachers had come into the church and they're teaching something contrary to what Paul had taught. And the people are listening to him. So he starts this defense of himself to say that they should be listening to Paul and that he's credible. And what he does is he goes through and just the last few weeks we looked at, he says uh, there's only one gospel. There's only one message that, that makes up the gospel and it's Christ alone. And Jesus, it's what we just sang. We just sang basically what the gospel is just then, that it's Christ alone and our faith in him. And that's what Paul says. He says there's one gospel and I know it's right and I know I have the right one because I got it directly from God. And then he starts to go into his defense and he says, uh, my life bears witness to it. And he gives his witness, um, what's happened in his life, kind of as a proof uh, of what's, what's happening. So he, he does that. And then he goes, the next week we look to, he talks about how he lines up with the original apostles. He says, we're saying the same thing. And he told us that and he went through it. And then last week we talked about his vigor to attack anything that is not the gospel. And we looked at that last week where he, he retells a time when he and Peter had a disagreement because Peter was not living the gospel. And what Paul was saying is, I am so convinced that this is the gospel and this is it. I will oppose anyone. I'll even go to Peter and tell him when he's out of step with the gospel. And so what we saw in these first two chapters is Paul saying, um, giving a defense of himself. And as he's doing that, he's defending the gospel. And we've, we've seen that. He's brought out lots of different things. But really those first two chapters are centered on Paul's life. And then in chapter 3, as we look at today, we're going to look at the first nine verses of chapter 3. So if you're not there, if you want to turn to Galatians 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. But starting in chapter 3, Paul's defense really becomes a theological one. It's no longer about himself. He's turning and he's really going to get into the, the real heart of what the gospel means. And this morning as we look at these nine verses, it's kind of interesting. There's two side by side. Really the first five verses is very experiential. It's very spiritual. He's, he's directly addressing the Galatians and their experience to coming to Christ. So he's going to speak very candidly right to them, and he asks them a bunch of questions. And then all of a sudden in verse 6, it switches to a very theological argument, and he goes back to the Old Testament. So he does both. He kind of takes the spiritual, experiential side of Christianity, and he asks those questions, and then he goes very much to the doctrinal side, and he puts them side by side. And we get a wonderful picture of the beginning of his defense here by looking at those nine verses together. So if you would, look with me at... Uh, Chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that, Christ, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith let's pray and then we're going to look at those those nine verses dear Lord we thank you for your word we thank you for what it teaches us we just pray uh, confessingly this morning that without your spirit we are lost 
that we need you to come and illuminate this, to uh, open our eyes to see the truth of your word. We pray that you would move mightily in this place this morning, that we would see clearly what you want us to see from your word. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go through this defense and we get into the theological, I guess it's partly experiential and then part of it's really heavy on the the theology part, but there's three things I want us to ask. And the first is, what is the sign of conversion? What's what's the mark of a true believer at conversion? Because Paul, it's implied here, and we'll see that. But then how do we get it? And then third, how is it all possible? So we're going to ask those three questions as we step through this. So first, what is the sign or the seal of faith that you're a true believer? And it's almost, it's very easy to almost miss it in this passage because it's not the main point of what Paul's headed to, but it's just implied. He's just assuming it. So look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And what I want you to see here is it's implied and it's right there. And he's asking the question, how did you receive the Spirit? But the implication is that if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. It's right there in front of you. It's almost so obvious because he's asking the question of how did you get it that we can just sometimes slide right past that. That he's saying you have the Spirit because you're a believer. It's, that's the mark of a true believer. It's kind of like if I say uh, to a married man, husband and wife standing there, and I say, tell me how you met your wife. And they start to explain. It's implied that you're married and that you have a wife. It's so obvious that it's almost... It almost feels silly saying it because it's right there. But that's what he's saying. You had the Spirit. He says in verse 2 that, did you receive the Spirit by works or by the law? But it's implied that they received the Spirit. It's important for us to at least stop and think about this a little bit. In our time today, very much in spirituality, I'm not just talking about the church, but in general terms, there's a lot of talk about spirituality and consciousness and and, and connecting with other world and that type of thing. And that's become very big today. I was reading the other day that there's, there's, a, uh, there's trends throughout the last 100 years in America. And at the very beginning of the 1900s, it was very much you went to church or you got involved in religion for social connections. Because that's what you did. That's what people did. That's what you're, um, for example, the, the article I was reading was talking about how uh, Italians in New York City went to the Catholic Church because that was their culture. And that was their people, and they joined the church, and they did that because of that. It was very much the reason in the early 1900s people went to church. And then around the 40s through this big round numbers, through the 80s, it became very much about moral improvement. You went to church so that they could help you be a better person, help you raise your children, help you to do better. And that was kind of the the trend. And now, in the last 20 years or so, it's become very much about connecting to the other world, very spiritual. If, if you don't, don't think that's true or you want to test on that, go into the religion section at like Barnes & Noble. I was there yesterday. And look at how many books are about spirituality and just kind of big ideas, spiritual type stuff. That's very much the trend today. People want spiritual without the morality. It's not even so much about the, the social connection. It's I want the, the connection without all the other stuff. So it's very important that we stop and at least consider and talk about spirituality and the Holy Spirit in the realm of Christianity, because it's right here, and it says that that is the mark that you've become a believer. It's very important that we get it. And I think sometimes within the church, we either don't talk about the Holy Spirit at all, or what we do is we say it almost uh, just very, just kind of throw it out there, like it's no big deal. It's just in passing. Yes, be led by the Spirit. And we say it like, and, and, and don't, 
don't misunderstand me. If you've said that, that doesn't mean you don't believe it and it's not real and it's not your understanding it. But it's just the way we talk about it sometimes. We kind of just flippantly throw it out there. And I want us to pause for just a second to consider the magnitude of what that means. That Paul says when you become a believer in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit? It's implied there that you became a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. And I was trying to think of different ways, and there's a, there's a bunch of examples, but in my mind I went to the tabernacle uh, in Exodus, the second half of Exodus, almost, actually not almost, uh, from Exodus 25 to 40, 15 chapters all about the tabernacle, how God's Spirit would come and dwell among Israel. And as you read through that, it's just all this detail about what they should do to make the tabernacle, which was the tent, the movable temple, to let God's Spirit come and dwell among them. And when you read it, they do all the stuff that God tells them. And it gets to the very end of Exodus 40, the very last verses of, of the uh, chapter or the book. And it says, uh, God's Spirit came down and filled the temple to where no one could go in. No one could even go. Moses couldn't even enter the temple because God's Spirit was now dwelling amongst them. And it says, during the day there was a cloud over it, and at night there was a pillar of fire. And to me, that's a wonderful visual um, a part of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about it. If you weren't aware, um, at this time when that happened in Exodus, there were two to three million Israelites camping. And they had the tabernacle right in the center. So there was two to three million people. That's a lot of people camping out there together. And they were around the tabernacle, but any of those people could walk out of their tents and look up and see the flame over the tabernacle at night. The fire that God was there with them. What a wonderful picture of God's spirit dwelling right there. But then I want you to jump ahead and think about when Jesus came. Right? Jesus, God in the flesh, walking on earth. If you were there with him, you could have touched him and talked to him and asked him the questions directly. But this is what I'm getting to with the spirit. Those two pictures. Jesus says in John 16, he tells the disciples, It is better that I go away because I will send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. Better than being out around the tabernacle and seeing the fire and knowing God is right there. Better than Jesus standing right with you, next to you, being able to answer your questions. Is when you become a believer, you get God's presence inside of you. I want you to just think about the magnitude of that statement. Because so many times we slip right past it. We're reading this and it says, you have the spirit, how did you get it? That's what Paul's asking but I want you to see how huge that is. God's very presence living inside of you. You read through Hebrews and it talks about all the tabernacle and all that stuff is now gone because of what Jesus did. And now the Holy of Holies is you. He lives inside of you. The God of creation, the God who raised the dead now lives inside of you. And I say that just because I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to slip past it and say, well, how did we get it? Because that's, that is a huge, huge statement. And I think when you start to really think about that and let that sink in a little, and then you move to Paul's argument of what he says, it makes it that much greater. So look what he says. So that's, that's the seal. That's the sign that you're a Christian. It's implied here. It's all throughout Scripture. It's in Romans 8. That if you have the Spirit, you're a believer. And if you don't, you're not. When you become a believer, you get the Holy Spirit. But then uh, look what he says here. How did, he's talking about how did you get it. Look at verse 5 with me for just a second. He says, uh, does he who supplies the Spirit to you 
and work miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. When you put those two side by side, God's very presence dwelling inside of you. And Paul's asking the question, did you get it by something you did? By being a good person. Is that how you got God's presence dwelling inside of you? Do you see how absurd that sounds? So I want to stop and take a second and think about how huge that implication is of God's spirit dwelling inside of you. That he would give that to you as a response to to your works. Think about your works for a second in light of that. Um, But then think what he says here. And I want you to see in verse 2 and in verse 3 and in verse 5, he's asking very specific questions to the Galatians. And he's addressing them very specifically. He starts the chapter, Oh foolish Galatians. Uh, One commentator I was reading this week said, uh, he could have just as easily said, Oh dear idiots. (laughs) That it's a a term of affection he's saying, but he's saying, Oh, you so miss this. And that's what he's saying here. And what he's asking is he's saying, How did you get this? And I want you to think just big picture who Paul was preaching, who the Galatians were. They were not Jewish. They were not religious. They were pagans. They weren't doing anything. They weren't seeking God in any way. They were just nothing. And Paul asked, and with that in mind, look at what he says in verse 2. Did you receive, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Anyone there... Anyone hearing this, the Galatians, as this letter is read, would know exactly the answer to that. They weren't even trying to keep the law. They didn't even know about the law. They didn't even care. All they knew, and it's what Paul says in verse 1, I came, and before your eyes I publicly portrayed Jesus Christ as crucified. Paul came, and all he preached to them was the gospel. That's all he did. He came, and he preached the gospel, and he preached it as boldly and as clearly as he could. And a lot of them became believers and they got the Holy Spirit. And now he's asking, how did that happen? Was it because you were keeping the law? And every single one of them that had come to faith through Paul's preaching when he was there before would have known the answer immediately. No, we weren't keeping the law. We weren't even pretending to keep the law. And then he asked another question. Look at verse 3. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the law? He says, you got the Spirit, you became saved by hearing with faith, not because you were doing something. And he said, but now that you're a Christian, you think the way you're going to stay a Christian and stay moving in this is suddenly it's going to be all about your works? That doesn't even make sense with how you got the Holy Spirit to begin with. Why would it start one way and then suddenly change? That's what he's asking them. And we talked about that last week, how we can slip into that. We can have a true and meaningful faith. We're putting our faith in Jesus and Christ alone. And then all of a sudden we start to slip back into works. Oh, i got to do this and i got to do that. And I talked about last week, the answer is the gospel. We have to go back to the gospel and keep reapplying it. I want to pause for just a second because this is such a fine line when you keep going back to the gospel. We do. We always have to go back to the gospel. Always see it as faith alone in Christ. But I don't want that to sound like we're saying you throw out doing anything else. You don't throw it out. You don't throw out scripture. You don't throw out God's commands, the things he wants us to do. But what it does is it changes the reason and why you do what you're doing. I was trying to think of a good example, and this is imperfect. It's not not quite right, but I was thinking, uh, if my son Asher comes to me, Asher's five years old, and he asks for a bike, and he says, Dad, will you buy me a bike? And I say, yes, I will buy you a bike because I love you, and I want you to have a bicycle. So we go and we buy him a bike. And I give it to him, and I say, here you go, this is your bike, and it's yours. I'll never take it from you, you get it, that's it. Your bike. 
And I say, but I'm going to ask you to do two things. I want you to always wear your helmet. This for Joanna. Uh, always wear your helmet and never ride it uh, in the street. I don't want you to ride it in the street unless I'm there with you. So you don't ride it in the street and you always wear your helmet. Now, if Asher says, okay, Dad, yes, I love you, I'll do that. And then he goes off and he only wears his helmet and he only doesn't ride his bike in the street because he's afraid I'm going to take the bike away from him. He's slipped into works-based righteousness. Do you see that? If we, and that's what the Galatians were doing. They came to it through faith. They're putting the faith, but then they slipped into, oh, I've got to do some works. Now, in that analogy, if he says, I will do that, and I'll keep my helmet on, and I'll stay out of the street because I love you, and I know you want what's best for me, then he's responding to it in faith. You see the difference there? It's about motivation. It doesn't mean we throw out the things the Bible tells us. We still do it because God loves us and he wants us to, be, to take care of us. He wants us to trust him. And we do it, not even for those reasons, because it's going to take care of us, but just because we love him. Because he loved us so much. It's in response to what he did. It's a very fine line. But I feel like I need to stop and say that because when we hit on the gospel and in grace every week, you can go, oh, well, you throw all that other stuff out and I'm good. And when we do that, then it becomes cheap grace. We trample on the work that Christ has done. So it's a fine line there. I want to stop and just at least say that. Now look at verse 5, the last part of how Paul, the experiential argument to the Galatians. What he says in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's really asking is, does God snap to and give you things because you're such a good person? Of course not. It's absurd. And they would have known it. And that's why he says they've been, they're foolish. Who has bewitched you? How in the world did you go from faith alone to this? It doesn't even make sense with what Paul's been teaching and what the gospel says. And he answers that, and then all of a sudden in verse 6, so that's, that's the very experiential. He's asking them, how did you get the Spirit? How do you know what was it like for you? Right? It's very, which I could ask the same question of us. You think about how you got the Spirit, how you became a Christian. How you put your faith, was it because you were such a good person that God decided to save you? Did he respond to you because you're just so great? I don't think anybody would say yes. I certainly wouldn't. But so then he switches, though, to a theological argument in verse 6. And you can see it's very much a practical kind of head argument, but it's good. We need both. We need the experiential, and we also need the theology. We need both together. And that's what Paul does here. He goes to verse 6, and look at what he says. And we'll go back to five just a little bit. He says, uh, are you hearing, or is it by hearing with faith? And then he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now what Paul does is he goes to the theology and he makes a brilliant argument from the Old Testament. And the reason he does so, the Judaizers, the false teachers that had come into the church in Galatia, that's what they were doing. They were going back to the Old Testament and they were saying, look at these things, look at the stuff you need to do. And they'd go back and they'd say, you need to do all this stuff. And Paul says, well, wait, wait a second. I'm going to go back with you to the Old Testament. Paul knew the Old Testament as well as anybody. And he goes back and he trumps their argument, really. He kind of defeats them on their own, their own turf. He goes back and he goes right back to Abraham. And what he says is he quotes Genesis 15:6. And if you know the context of Genesis 15, what it is, is God calls Abraham for the first time in Genesis 12. And then he goes and he does some things and he's following God. In a few years past, we think about 10 years. So Abraham is now 85 years old. God had promised him 10 years prior that you're going to have tons and tons of descendants. He gives them the Abrahamic covenant and he tells them we're going to have all these descendants. And here he is 10 years later and he's got none. 
no kids, 85 years old, his wife is barren. And God takes him outside and he says, Abraham, I want you to look up at the stars. You are going to have as many children as there are stars. Abraham is in no place to uh, live by his works. None. And you know what he says? He says, okay, I believe you. And what it says right here and what Paul is quoting is God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by his faith. He wasn't saved by his doing or his works. Even way back in the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, Paul says he was saved by his faith. He put his faith in what God was going to do, and that's what saved him. Faith alone. And what Paul does here is he goes back and he trumps their argument. Then look at what he says. He doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verses 7 and 8. Now then, those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This is huge, what he says here. Huge. He goes all the way back. Now he's quoting Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is the original call of Abraham. And if you know the call of Abraham, I know some of the high school students that we used to do this all the time. What are the four things of the Abrahamic covenant? There's four, four promises. And what he says is, I will give you a great number of descendants of people. I'll give you a land. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless the world through your seed. It's the four promises that he gives. And that's what Paul goes back to. He goes all the way back here to the very beginning, to the Abrahamic covenant. But what he says is, and this is what's so huge and what's so incredible, when he goes back and he makes this argument, he says that promise to Abraham all the way back there. Abraham, the father of the faith starting of, of God's chosen people right at the beginning. It goes all the way back to that and look at what he says in verse 8. In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel goes all the way back to Abraham. It was always about Jesus coming for you to be saved by faith. That fourth promise I will bless the world through your seed, is looking ahead to the Messiah. That's what he's talking about. And when, what Paul says is he makes, and he connects all the dots here, and he starts to say that all this stuff, all the ritual stuff of the Old Testament, all the things they're trying to add to your faith now, because that's what they were doing. They were trying to add some of these old things to it. He says all of that stuff was about getting to Jesus. It was always about faith alone in Christ. Always. Going all the way back to the beginning, it was always pointing ahead to Jesus. It was never about all this other stuff. All the other stuff was there as the, mean, as the uh, means to get to an end, not the end. You see how that is? Because that's what the Judaizers are saying. No, no, no. The end is Jesus plus some other stuff. And Paul says, no, it's not. All of it was pointing ahead to Jesus. Even from Genesis 12 all the way back to the beginning. And what he says is uh, it was all... Never about outward signs. It was never about circumcision just for the sake of circumcision. It was never about even Jewishness or Israel. All those things were pointing to Christ. That's why God worked in that way to get to faith alone. And you don't need to go back to these outward signs. That's what Paul's saying. And I want you to see how brilliant his argument is because circumcision at this point, and this is what we read in Romans 4 this morning. Romans 4 goes into it in much greater detail than Paul's argument, but he's making the same argument here as he's making in Romans 4. And what he says is, 
In Genesis 15, when God says to Abraham, I counted it to him as righteousness, he had not been circumcised yet. And what he's saying is he was saved by faith and his circumcision had nothing to do with it. And that's what he's telling them. It goes all the way back. So it's like all their arguments about the Mosaic Law and the Old Testament or all those things. Paul says, I'll go back further. I'll go all the way back to Abraham and I'll show you how all of this was pointing to Jesus. And it was always about faith alone. It was never about works. So what he's saying is you get the sign as a believer of the Holy Spirit. You become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. But you get it by faith alone and nothing else. And he makes that argument so clear through even going back to the Old Testament. He hits on their experience, very experiential, this is what happened in your life, and they would say, yes, we know that. And then he says, no, wait a second, let me take you back all the way in the Old Testament and show you it was the same thing there. So he gets at both sides, their experience with the theology, and he puts the two together. Now the last part, and I don't want us to miss this, because it really just undergirds the whole thing about God's faith alone, that it's all, all God working for us. And it's right in uh, verse 1, and this is, so we've got uh, the mark being the Holy Spirit, how we get it is through faith, but how is that even possible? How is it even possible that we come to him in faith? And you've got to stick with me on this for just a second. Look at verse 1, because it's kind of a confusing thing when you really start to think about what he's saying. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified kind of interesting when you think about it. Before your eyes, he was portrayed as crucified. How in the world does Paul, before their eyes, portray him as crucified? Through a passion play? Did he actually act? I don't think that's what he's saying, but I think the answer is in Ephesians. So if you, if you would, the next book of your Bible, Ephesians, just flip over maybe two pages to chapter 1 of Ephesians. And look at me with verses uh, 16 to 18. So I think this informs what Paul's saying when he says, before your very eyes that you saw this. He says in verse 16, I do not cease to give my thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know that it, what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So what Paul says in Ephesians 1, what he brings out in Ephesians 1, is he talks about the eyes of their hearts. I think that's the same thing he's talking about in Galatians 1. He just doesn't say it quite the same way. Because what he says is, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes. And it makes a lot more sense before the eyes of your heart. That it's a heart issue. And then what he says, when you take that in conjunction with what he says in verse 3, when he says, are you so foolish, having begun... By the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? The way they came to faith, the way they could grasp it at all, was by God's Holy Spirit opening the eyes of their heart to see Jesus for who he is. It was only through God opening their eyes to allow them to see it. So what, it, so what that means when we say that is even for you to come to faith, Yes, it's not works, it's not faith, but it even goes deeper. We're going to step down. We're going to the very foundation of why you can even come to faith. And the only way you can even come to faith is because God allows you to see it. He opens your eyes to see Jesus for who he is. And I say that, and it's important when we talk about faith alone and Christ alone, for God's glory alone, 
because it takes us all the way down to the foundational level, and the only way we can be saved is by God choosing us. By opening our eyes to see what he's done. And once we see it, of course we're going to see his. But it's him who does it. It's him who allows us. And the reason I make that point when we talk about faith alone and why that's important, if we just leave it as, oh, you just come to faith, and you put your faith in Christ, and that's the end, then that leaves it. Well, why did you come to faith? And you can easily slip into, well, I came to faith because I was smart enough to figure it out. And then suddenly we've opened the door right back up to works-based righteousness. Because I did this. I was smart enough, or I was whatever. No, you weren't. It was God's Holy Spirit that opened your eyes and allowed you to see it. It was Him at every step along the way. I love the, the it's not, I didn't come up with it. There was a professor, his name was Edmund Clowney, that used to say, God loves you because He loves you. And that's, that's the end of it. That takes you to the end of the line. He loves you because He loves you. That's it. Not because you were smart enough, not because you figured it out, not because whatever, because he did it. So when you get to that end, when we hit that spot, it is faith alone. It's God alone, for his glory alone. He does every single bit of it along the way. And it's, that's where we end up. And that's what Paul's saying over and over. And we're going to see as he goes further and further into this that we see it so clearly that it's, that it's all God doing it on our behalf. And when we get that, we come to the amazing realization of his love is not dependent on me. What a wonderful thought. His love is not in response to how good I was acting and how many works I did. What a terrible thought if it was. That we can be secure and thankful for how much he loves us because he did it at every step. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We cannot even begin to fathom the... uh, enormity of your word and what it says and the statements that you loved us, that you chose us before the foundation of the world, that it was your doing on our behalf, that uh, you allowed us, that you opened the eyes of our heart to see you. We thank you, thank you, thank you that you saw fit to reveal your son to us. I pray this morning that uh, the reality of that would sink in. The reality of your Holy Spirit dwelling amongst us and inside of us, that we would never take that lightly or for granted, that we would thank you uh, each and every day. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.